Well, good morning again. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Fellowship. We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Peter. Uh, We're going to be at the end of chapter 3. Before we read that, though, and before we pray, just two very uh, brief announcements. First, uh, we're going to be having uh, our first Discovering Hope since uh, the beginning of COVID, I believe. Uh, Discovering Hope is a time when, if you are new to our church and haven't had a chance to learn a little bit about what we believe, Uh, the history of our church, ways to get involved, that's where you can come and do that. So that will be June 12th after the service in the church office. So if you want more details about that, please come talk to me. And then also today after the service, uh, kids, kids third through fifth grade, there is a Sunday fun day, I believe that includes actual ice cream sundaes outside of the the doors um, to the, uh, to the entrance of the school here. So uh, parents, up to you if you, uh, if you feel that that's a good idea for the rest of your Sunday, but we'd love to have you join for that if, if you're available. Um, also, I should mention uh, the, pol- the, the trip to Poland uh, that Liz and Callie from our group uh, and the Seplos are leading. Uh, they've arrived safely. They're beginning their work of ministry there, so continue to keep them in your prayers over the next couple weeks. All right, well, you've already had a chance to turn your bi- in your Bibles, hopefully, to 1 Peter 3. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll read our passage this morning. Father, we know that your word is living, and it's active, and that like a surgeon, you cut us where we need to be cut, and then you heal us, and you comfort us. And so we ask that you would do that today. I ask that my lips would be filled with your messages that you'd give us the gift of seeing your son and his love for us clearly this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let me read our passage. 1 Peter 3, going to be reading verses 13 through 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Last weekend, Megan and I had a friend visiting us from out of town who spent a lot of time working on a very large ship. 
Uh, at one point over the weekend, uh, when he was talking about his job on the ship, we found out that he had actually held the position of being the navigator, which if you, I, I found is actually a very important position, as I discovered, because you're the one, if, if you're the navigator, you're the one that's giving the captain the courses to and from places, which means that you're responsible if you run out of gas, and you're responsible to make sure you don't run into a storm of any kind. And as we were talking about that, I asked him if they ever were in danger at some point of a ship uh, of a storm capsizing the ship, of turning it over. Now, if you know much about modern ships, big modern ships, you probably know the answer to this. I didn't. He explained that the way that ships are built today, or at least the ship that he was on, if you were to turn the ship upside down in the water, it was built so well that it would flip all the way back around, and the ship itself would be fine. The crew might not be fine, but the ship would be fine if it flipped all the way around. The only way to, ship, to sink this ship that he was on was for something to hit the bottom of it so, so powerfully that the keel would crack. The ship would go down that way. But outside of that happening, which is extraordinarily rare, if the ship were to turn over, it would right itself again. So the point that I want to make is this. If that ship encountered rough seas or some kind of storm, this navigator was not afraid because he knew he was safe on an unsinkable ship. Our passage today talks about fear, and it talks about water, fear and water. And we're going to see today as we look at this passage, my hope is that we see it for the Christian, how these two things correspond to one another, and specifically how it is that our Savior drives the fear of others out of our hearts. Now, Peter, throughout this whole book, has been talking about suffering, as you know, if you've been with us. We've talked a lot about suffering, and today we're talking about one specific aspect of suffering, or you might say one, one result of suffering for the Christian, one concern, um, how it is that we avoid allowing persecution to cause the fear of others to make us lose sight of our Savior. And so today, we're actually going to look at these, there's two paragraphs, if you have a Bible, you can see there's two paragraphs that we just read. We're actually going to flip those, flip the order that we talk about them in. We're going to talk first about verses uh, 16 through 20, I'm sorry, 18 through 22, uh, and then second we'll talk about verses 13 to 17. And the reason we're doing that is because that second paragraph talks quite a bit about Jesus himself and what he accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. And that first paragraph is about exalting Jesus in our hearts, honoring him in our hearts, and how that drives the fear of others out. So I want to start with the second because I want us to know what it is we're exalting in our hearts, what it is we're honoring when we allow that to, to, when we allow our hearts to honor Christ, to drive out the fear. And so, in doing that, we'll look at two main points this morning. Here they are. First, Jesus is our unsinkable ship. And second, so we can stand firm against fear. Jesus is our unsinkable ship, so we can stand firm against fear. And it's my hope that as we consider these things, that the strength of our Savior and the security of our salvation would drive out any fear we may have of other people. So let's consider that first point, that Jesus is our unsinkable ship. So look, if you've got a Bible, look down with me again, verse 18. Peter writes this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
Now, Peter has the gospel in view here throughout this paragraph and throughout our whole passage. The gospel is, is very close to his mind, so it's important that we keep that in view as well. And in particular, Peter's describing the outcome of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the outcome of it. So if you look down in verse 18, you'll see it with me, or look up at the screen. The Son of God, he suffered once and for all for our sins, so he could bring us to God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to the family of God because Jesus has brought you into the family by dying for your sin and then being raised again by the Spirit. He's brought you to God. That's key for this whole paragraph. It's key for this whole passage, and frankly, it's key for the whole book. And Peter's going to tease out here some of what actually happened when Jesus died and was raised again. So first, in verse 19, Peter says, Jesus proclaimed his victory to spirits in prison who were imprisoned based on their disobedience to God during the days of Noah. Now, this is a tricky verse. It's difficult. Uh, there's a couple ways, I think, that are f- ways to faithfully interpret what we have here. But there's one main idea. And I think r- regardless of which interpretation you go with, there's one main idea that I think Peter really wants us to walk away with. And that's this. There is no part of this universe that is outside the kingship of Jesus. There's nothing. There's no soul. There's no evil spirit. There is no person who won't know and one day bow before Jesus as the king. Now, over the years since Peter wrote this verse, there's two, as I said, there's kind of two main ways that it's been interpreted. Either these are the souls, the souls in prison are the souls of people who were disobedient to God before the flood and then died when the flood came. And they have somehow been imprisoned since that day. That's the first way. The second way to interpret it is that these, these, are, uh, these spirits are demonic forces who are active on earth and were breaking God's law in some way, or in many ways likely, before the flood. Now I believe the best way to understand this verse is that second interpretation, that the spirits are demonic forces that were breaking God's laws, mostly because if you look down in verse 22, uh, that reinforces that Peter has spiritual forces in mind here. He talks about Jesus uh, seated at the right hand of God in heaven with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So it seems that he's talking here about evil spiritual forces. But again, regardless, either interpretation, as I said, the main point Peter wants us to see here is that Jesus' victory was cosmic in scope. When God the Son died to satisfy the wrath of God and was raised again to new life, that was proclaimed to every part of the universe, spiritual and physical, that Jesus is king. And that there is no part of the world, again, whether it's a spirit or whether it's your next-door neighbor, who will not one day bow before King Jesus. Now Peter's going to go on to make what seems at first to be a random point about the ark, about the ark in Noah's day and how eight people were saved in it. And then he starts talking about baptism. So uh, we're going to read that again, and then I just want you to stay with me closely because we have to follow uh, several connections that Peter is assuming just because of his Old Testament knowledge, uh, but we may need to make explicitly to kind of understand how all these pieces are tying together. So let me read verse 20 and 21 again, and then we'll talk through what seems to be going on here. Okay, speaking of the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so to understand what's going on here, we're going to back up, do a little systematic slash biblical theology here, uh, and talk about water. The concept of water in the Old Testament, especially very large quantities of water, often represented judgment and death. So if you think through stories in the Old Testament where there's large bodies of water, very likely they somehow are connected with either God's judgment or death in some way. So we have one here immediately in our text, right? The, the, the flood. Uh, back in Noah's day, Peter references here when the, the flood was God's judgment upon the evil of the world and people drowned in the water. But God brought his people safely through the water. When the Israelites leave Egypt, they're stopped by the Red Sea, which we know eventually God uses to destroy the Egyptians. He judges the Egyptians through the Red Sea, the water, and they drown. But then God, but first, God brings his people safely through the water. And before the Israelites could enter the Promised Land, they have to cross the Jordan River. But once again, God parts the Jordan River for them so that they can walk across it safely. And again, God brought his people safely through the water. So if you're following here, if water represents God's judgment and death, and God brings his people safely through that judgment, that water, then the ark was the vessel that God used to rescue his people from God's judgment. So you may start to see the connections here that Peter's drawing now up to Jesus. The vessel that saved God's people from God's judgment as they went through the water was the ark. And when faced with God's judgment, God's people need a savior. They need a ship. They need a way to make it safely across through the judgment of God. But then Peter's going to make the jump to baptism. And he says that corresponds to God rescuing Noah and his family from the floodwaters. And so now, to understand all these connections Peter's making, uh, looking at the story of Noah briefly. Noah lived in a day of great evil. Genesis 6 says that the intention of the thoughts of people's hearts were only evil continually. Evil continually. So God decides that to stop the evil from continuing, he would wipe the earth clean with a flood. God's judgment on the wickedness of man came in the form of water, and then after that, he would repopulate the earth. And God saw that Noah and his family feared him. So God told Noah to build this massive, massive ark that would hold Noah and his family and all the animals that they were going to use to then repopulate the new world. And if you notice down in verse 20, Peter says that God's patience waited in those days while the ark was being built. Now, we don't know exactly how long it took Noah to build this ark, but given the size of it, that it was likely around one and a half to two football fields long— this is a massive, massive boat. It probably took him several decades to build this boat. And so what was happening, as this boat was being built, the vessel that God would use to save his people from judgment, this was a picture to all the people around them that judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. God was warning the wicked around them that there was judgment on its way. And so as a result, back in Noah's day, there's essentially two groups of people. There's people who experienced God's merciful patience but did not repent. 
And then there are those who experienced God's saving grace by means of a ship that carried them safely through the waters of God's judgment. And the major point for us today is this. God's judgment is still coming. Not in the form of a flood, but God's judgment is coming on the final day of the Lord, where everyone will be held accountable for every thought, evil thought, and every evil deed that they have ever done. And the judgment on that day won't come in the form of water. It will be in the form of fire. And on that day, there will be only one hope to be rescued from God's judgment, only one way to be brought safely through it. And that will be if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever been out on open water before, you know that it is an exhilarating feeling so long as your boat is sturdy. Any happiness or exhilaration you feel when you're out on the water is completely tied to how seaworthy the boat is that you're in. My family once got caught in this very minor storm on a sailboat once. We were trying to get into this channel that we could get to the harbor, but there was a a drawbridge essentially blocking our way in. Since we were a sailboat, we couldn't go through it. And the guy who ran the drawbridge only opened it maybe like on the hour, some, some consistent period of time. So us and some other sailboats are stuck out on this lake as the storm is coming in, and we can't get in, so we're honking at him. He won't open the drawbridge. We make it in fine. It's okay. But it was an interesting feeling at that moment to realize that if for some reason our boat got jeopardized, we were in a very, very scary and compromised position. We could drown because there was, the storm was enough that we would not be safe swimming through that water. Your safety on the water is completely dependent on the boat. And to now tie all these different things together from this, from this section as we've been talking, when the boat is Jesus, you know that you have nothing to be afraid of. Just as Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment, Jesus brings his followers safely to God. And the way that he has brought us safely through God's judgment and brought us to God is through his death and through his resurrection. The only way to survive God's judgment is to get on that boat and to put your trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, you know that you are safe. Now, you probably noticed that Peter says in verse 21 that baptism now saves you. So let's talk about that phrase for a moment. You may also remember that a few weeks ago we had the chance to celebrate a baptism here. And we very explicitly said baptism itself does not save you. So... Let's explain this. I want, to, I want to explain this by how, how we understand what Peter's saying and why we believe that, that the baptismal itself, the water and the baptism, is not what saves us. Okay, first, look at verse 21 with me. Peter says that what saves you is not the removal of dirt from the body. You see that there? It is not the washing of dirt from your body that saves you. But he says it's the appeal to God for a good conscience that saves you. So Peter's saying here it's not the physical washing that saves you from God's judgment. It's not the water. What saves us is our appeal to God, and what does the saving is Jesus. Who does the saving is Jesus. He is the way that we can draw near to God. And the way we appeal to God for a good conscience is through our faith in the death and the resurrection of our Savior. Peter says as much at the end of verse 21, the appeal for a good conscience happens through the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, remember, Jesus is who saves you, not the water of the baptismal. However, 
If you are a follower of Jesus, and if you have not been baptized, I want you to see here that Peter does not have a category for an unbaptized Christian. Baptism and following Jesus are inextricably linked in his mind. There is no separating them. And it's not just Peter who links this. The author of Hebrews makes the same, same point, a very, very similar point. Let me read this for us. Hebrews 10, verse 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the emphasis in both of these passages is on the object of our faith and on his faithfulness to us. And that faith is closely linked with baptism. So following Jesus and baptism ought to be linked in our minds as well. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and if you are a follower of Jesus, God's desire is for you to participate in that sign. It's a sign of your appeal to God for, for safety from the judgments that you rightly deserve. And it's also a way that God warns those who aren't followers of Jesus. That although you come back up out of the water, symbolically, when the day of judgment comes, they will not come back up out of the water if they are not followers of Christ. A judgment will flood over them. So, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are not baptized, I encourage you to hear the call of your Savior here. And please come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about taking this step of obedience to the Lord. Now, Peter wraps up this section with one more reminder about the power of our, uh, the security of our boat, but maybe just to leave that metaphor behind for a minute, um, the kingship of Jesus. He ends this section by talking about the kingship of Jesus. The man, Jesus, who is the Son of God, invites us to come to him, gentle and lowly, is also the ruling king over all the forces in this universe. Evil powers, angels and authorities are all under him. And so this, this idea right here is how Peter can say, all the way back in verse 13, who is it that can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the answer for the Christian is no one can truly harm you in any real way because your king is King Jesus. He is our unsinkable ship. So let's actually now return back to verses 13 through 17. Look back up in your Bibles if you have them. We've seen how Jesus is the unsinkable ship for those who put their trust in him. So now we're going to look at our second point. Because that is true, we can stand firm against fear. So let's read verse 13 one more time. Peter starts verse 13 with this rhetorical question. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And again, as we've said, the answer ultimately is no one. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a very similar point to that Paul makes in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He writes this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we should take a great deal of comfort in this. There is nothing ultimately that can separate us from God's love. However, 
That question in verse 13 comes in the context of this book. And it comes in the context of saying, if you do good things, kind of in a wisdom statement, if you do good things, most likely people aren't going to harm you, but we know that Peter's audience was in fact suffering a great deal for their faith. They knew what Jesus had done for them, but they were still under a great deal of pressure. And Peter knows, when you are under pressure for your faith, there is a danger that you will begin to fear other people so much that you will lose sight of your Savior. You see what Peter says in verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I want to talk about that statement. Have no fear, nor be troubled. Now, the Bible calls this idea the fear of man, right? Being afraid of what people might think of you, of ways, things they might do to you, being afraid of what they uh, might exclude you from, being afraid they might actually physically hurt you. All these are forms of this idea of the fear of man. Ed Welch is a, a counselor and an author for a group called CCEF, and he frames the fear of man in terms of the question, who is it that controls you? I think that's really helpful. Who is it that controls you? Peter knows this part, this question quite well. <laughs> Welch points out that Peter knew what it was like to be so afraid of people that his allegiance to his Savior was threatened. Because the night when Jesus was arrested, Peter was more afraid of a little girl standing near a charcoal fire when she asked him if he knew Jesus. And Peter let that fear win his heart that night. And he said he didn't know Jesus. And I expect that many of us, if we're honest, are more familiar with that feeling than we'd like to admit. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask to Peter. How is it that we choose not to fear other people, choose not to be troubled, particularly in environments that are hostile to followers of Jesus? Now, Peter answers that question in a couple ways in our passage. And keep in mind, this is a man who knows the intensity of this fear. He understands what it's like to fear other people. So these are not untested practices. Peter knows that this is how we stand firm when we are afraid. So the first thing Peter says, he puts the rewards of persevering through suffering in front of us. The first part of verse 14 says that if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now that word blessed is the same one that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount as the reward portion of the Beatitudes. Right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But perhaps a more accurate way to translate that, or, or one that's, that's closer to, uh, it's close to our own uh, vernacular, is to say happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or closer to our passage from Matthew 5.10, blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, the, the difference is this happiness is not uh, foolish or hapless or circumstantial. This happiness is much more durable than the, than the sense that we might get when we say happiness. It's a peaceful, joyful, durable kind of happiness that comes from knowing that we are part of the kingdom of heaven. It can't be shaken. Now, one of the major assumptions in our modern culture is that happiness often comes in the form of leisure. You've probably noticed this. Comfortable cars, comfortable clothes, comfortable job, 
maybe a comfortable retirement. There's literally a whole clothing industry called athleisure, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms. I once bought this pair of house slippers, and the online marketing promised me a log cabin with my feet up on this blanketed ottoman with a candle kind of nicely off in the distance. It has not been a regular part of my experience with those slippers. But I think we can all see none of the stuff that promises comfort, none of the things or the activities that promise comfort produce a happiness that's durable in any real way. And even though most of us recognize that leisure doesn't provide durable happiness or blessedness, Peter's promise is still very, very counterintuitive. And that is this, that if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you'll be blessed. Did you get that? If you suffer, you'll be blessed. And there's no equivocating. He doesn't give any sort of, you know, if in this case, then you'll be blessed, but only, etc. If you suffer, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you will be blessed. This is a mystery in a lot of ways. But God's word promises it to us right here. That being persecuted for the sake of Jesus will cause you blessing, will cause you to be blessed. It will bring a lasting kind of happiness that's durable for a number of reasons, but perhaps most importantly because you know that God is with you and he is bringing you to his kingdom. And if you trust the promise of God enough to believe that this is true, that God will be with you, When you are persecuted for God's sake, that is a very, very powerful way to defeat fear. Now, the second way that Peter is going to help us combat this fear is by saying to honor Jesus as holy in our hearts and be ready to defend him to others. Now, Peter is actually using a quote from Isaiah chapter 8 here to frame the Christian response to persecution uh, in verses 14 and 15 of our passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. And then I'm going to read Isaiah 8, verse 11 to 13. And I want you to see if you can pick up on the similarities that Peter is uh, using from Isaiah. So let me read first, 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. All right, now let me read Isaiah 8, 11 to 13. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So do you see the similarities between the two verses here? Don't fear what they fear. But fear the Lord of hosts and honor him in your heart as holy. Now, I think it's interesting. Isaiah is speaking to God's people hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter's day. And yet, although their context and their culture was different, they struggled with the same danger of being more afraid of people than of God. Peter was writing to a very different context and culture than ours. And they also were in danger of being more afraid of people than of God. And today, in our own context and culture, we certainly are in that same danger. So Peter, using Isaiah, is going to encourage us with this strategy. When you face the fear of man 
Honor Christ the Lord in your heart as holy. This is time-tested through millennia of experience of God's people. When you realize you are beginning to act more in fear of others' opinions or thoughts of you, or be afraid of what things they might, what uh, havoc they might wreak on your life, that is the moment to remind yourself of who your Savior is and what he has done for you. That's where we go down to remember that Jesus is our unsinkable ship because of his death and resurrection. We remember what it cost him to deliver us through the waters of God's judgment. And the certainty of what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus did for you, compared with the fear of what someone else might do to you, will cause that fear to lessen and your confidence in Christ to grow. It may not be an immediate fix, might not just erase the fear in our hearts, but over time, if we create this habit for ourselves of remembering Jesus and what he did for us and comparing it against what we're afraid of, who we're afraid of on earth, it will eventually have the effect of lessening that fear because we will be choosing to let our hearts be captured by Christ and not by people. For those who don't know Jesus, this kind of hope is kind of incomprehensible. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so Peter knows this. So he's going to go on in verse 15 to say what to do when this kind of hope raises questions in the minds of others. When you're faced with the fear of man, honor Christ in your heart as holy and be prepared Be prepared to make a defense for why you are different and do so in a gentle and respectful way. The reality is that everyone in your life most likely knows something about being afraid of other people. And they will notice if you are willing to take losses, either personally or financially or in some other way, because you fear God more than you fear other people. So be prepared, Peter says. Be prepared in those moments to tell someone why the fear of people doesn't control you, that Jesus is better and stronger and will last far longer than anything else here on earth. Now, Peter here is talking very specifically about explaining why you maintain your holy way of life when there's pressure to do otherwise. And each of us knows our own lives and contexts where fear can cause us to slip and to lose step with how God has told us how to walk. And so Peter's saying, right here, to be prepared. I once, had a, I once heard a coach tell a basketball player that before you go on the court, I want you to visualize getting a certain kind of rebound so that when the moment comes, you react like that instead of reacting in a way that just kind of relies on your instincts. Same kind of idea here. If our instincts are, are, are going to be the one things that control us in the moment when someone asks, why do you have hope? Most likely, or it could be, that we do not take that moment to explain why we love Jesus. But if we prepare, if we know exactly what we're going to say in that moment, and by God's grace, we will be able to defend the hope that he has put inside of us. And we do it gently and respectfully, as Peter says. This is not like a gotcha moment. Or some kind of attempt to show someone why their worldview is faulty. We're, we're doing this in a way to treat, we're doing this in a way that is kind and gentle, the same that we've received from Jesus, so that our consciences are clear that we've represented Jesus well to others. Now, finally, at the end here, verse 16, remember that your vindication is coming. Those who slander Jesus' followers for following Jesus will one day be put to shame. They'll be proved wrong. 
and their actions of disparaging what is good will be exposed as wrong. That's an encouragement to Christians. It should be an encouragement to Christians, but it's also a warning for those who mock Christians about their ways of life. There's a day coming when all people and all their actions will be judged, and the only way to make it through that day safely will be in Christ. So this is how we combat that fear of other people. By honoring Christ in our heart as holy, remembering what our Savior did for us, how he died for our sins, how he was raised again to defeat death, and how he now brings his followers safely to God. So Hope Fellowship, let this passage remind us to keep our hearts fixed on our Savior. And let this passage remind us to prepare ourselves to identify with our Savior. The Savior who went into the grave for us, was resurrected back to life, and is now seated at the right hand of God with everything under his authority. So when we encounter storms in our lives in the form of any kind of persecution or suffering because we follow Jesus, we can know with confidence that we are safe. Our ship is safe. We don't have to be afraid, and we can live with confidence that our Savior will bring us safely to God.